Well, since last Sunday was Christmas Eve, I chose a passage that I felt was appropriate to that day. We looked at Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 together, because that gave us the opportunity to briefly delve into the doctrine of the Incarnation which, of course, is the truth that God, the eternal God, took on a human nature and a human body and came to this world as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Well, that passage emphasized the divine timing of all that, the divine timing of Christ's coming. In fact, verse 4 said it was in the fullness of time that it happened. You'll remember we said that that ultimately just means that it happened according to when God determined it should happen. It happened according to God's sovereign timetable. And as well, the passage last time emphasized the purpose for Christ's coming. That divine purpose is in verse 5. It says that He came to redeem those who are under the law. Therefore, He paid the price to set them free, set us free from bondage to the law so that they could be adopted into his own family. In addition to those verses, though, we spent just a few minutes looking at verses 1, 2, and 3 right before that passage. We noted there that the Apostle Paul used an illustration to set up the discussion of Christ's coming. You'll remember that illustration in verses 1, 2, and 3. It was the idea of something in their culture that day, that there could be a young man in a family who was a minor. In other words, he was too young to actually receive the inheritance. He was the designated heir of his father's estate, but he had to wait until the appointed time set by the father to receive that inheritance. And up until that time, that child's experience was hardly any different than that of a slave because the father also appointed guardians and managers to oversee every aspect of that minor's life. But when he finally came of age, then that whole system of guardians and managers was done away with. And from that point on, he was free in a sense from that bondage and in a position then to receive the inheritance. Well, not everything in that analogy is meant to be in a one-to-one correspondence to the experience of God's people in the Old Testament who lived under the Mosaic law, under the old Mosaic covenant. But in general, it was a good illustration. It did capture uh, the issue. And therefore, verse 3 gave this explanation. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. That was life in the Mosaic covenant. But our passage started with the word but. In contrast to all that, verse 4 says, all that has changed when God moved on to the next era of His plan. It was a plan that involved sending the Son into the world at the designated time to provide Uh, the fuller explanation of salvation and, and a fuller explanation of what it means to live a life serving and worshiping God. This was always God's plan for Jesus to come, the divine Son, to be born of a woman. And we explained last week that that just means to be born as a human, to take on a human nature in addition to His divine nature. 
It was always God's plan for him to be born under the law, which meant he was born in a in that same, under that same covenant, obligated to, to seek to perfectly fulfill the law's obligations of obedience. And he did that. He did perfectly fulfill that. And he even went onto the cross willingly to be sacrificed in death, to satisfy the divine wrath and justice for his people who had not perfectly obeyed the law. That was Always God's plan, all of that, so that his people would be set free from the bondage to the law and to that covenant. So the Apostle Paul wanted to make it clear that Christians are no longer under that law, the Mosaic covenant, as a covenant. That Christ came and he inaugurated a new covenant. Yet I want to clarify something once again. It's important to remind ourselves again that God's law was not the problem. In other words, the law itself was good. It taught people about the character of God and His ways. It taught people what sin is and what holiness looks like. And most important, it taught them their need for a Savior since they could not live up to the law's standards. That's why Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. He never let go of this conviction about the law. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But nevertheless, we are not under that law. We are instead in Christ and even adopted into God's family. So we can summarize what we learned last time and what Paul provided us in those first few verses in Galatians 4. We can summarize it this way. He taught us some Christology, truth related to Christology. In theological studies, Christology is the study of Christ. He gave us some elements of Christology in that passage. In addition, he gave us some truth related to soteriology. That's another discipline in theological studies. Soteriology is the study of the truth about salvation. So both Christology and soteriology, some elements of those disciplines were found in those verses. Well, we're past Christmas now, but even so, I decided to go ahead and preach the next two verses in Galatians because these two verses complete the theological thinking that Paul was expressing. In our verses today, verses 6 and 7, the apostle moves forward from Christology and soteriology to pneumatology. And in theology, that refers to the study of the Holy Spirit. Now, this will not be an exhaustive or thorough presentation of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit today. But even though the pneumatology is brief, what we will see is important because today we find that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is connected to our adoption into God's family. So we're going to see that connection in verses 6 and 7 as we more specifically now look at two significant outcomes of being adopted into God's family. We are sons and daughters 
He uses the word sons, but it means sons and daughters. As sons and daughters, here's one significant outcome of being adopted. We enjoy intimacy. Now, like any good parent, God wants His children to be assured of His love. He wants them to be confident of that love, even to rest in His love. So, He not only sent forth His Son into the world, God the Father also sent someone else, and that's verse 6. It reads, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. He sent forth the Son into the world, and now it says He sent forth His Spirit. And the same verb is used both times. So just as God sent forth His Son into the world, so also God sent forth the Spirit. But remember what we said about Jesus last time? The fact that He was sent forth, that confirms that He was preexistent before that. We also said that everything we found in the verses confirmed that He is divine. He was preexistent and he is defined, divine. And we can conclude the same facts about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was preexistent before being sent. And he is also divine. In fact, the Spirit has shared in all that has been accomplished in redemption history from the beginning onward. Now, there are lots of verse that, verses in the scriptures that give us the role of the Holy Spirit and His involvement, but here's just a few. We find in Genesis that the Holy Spirit was actually involved in the creation of the world when God brought into being the cosmos out of chaos. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over, brooding over the surface of the waters. The Spirit shared in all the eternal decrees, including God's eternal decree to create human beings in, in the divine image. Genesis 1.26, look at the plural nature of what's said. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. There's a, a hint at the Godhead, the three-person trinity. The Holy Spirit is part of that. The Holy Spirit gave guidance to the nation of Israel all on the way, even insights to their prophets. Judges 6, verse 34, so the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. David said this in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. You jump to the New Testament. The Holy Spirit came to the Virgin Mary, you'll remember. It was the Spirit that enabled her to give birth to Messiah apart from the involvement of a human father. Luke 1.35, the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. On the day of Pentecost... Or even before that, Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3, the Holy Spirit was sent upon Christ to confirm His Messiahship. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and it says that John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. And yes, go past the life of Jesus and the 
resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. And then on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit inaugurated a whole new era of redemptive history and the birth of the church, Acts 2 verse 4, and they who were gathered there were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So now in our verse in Galatians 4, we find this idea of the Spirit being bestowed on individuals. It says he was sent forth into our hearts, that verse says. Sent forth into our hearts. What is the heart? It was the very, it's the very core and the center of our being. The core and center of the inner man. We learned this in in theology, from Dr. Zimmick, he loved to refer to the heart as mission control center, to put it in terms of NASA. The heart is the, the mainstream of, of feeling, emotions, and words, and actions. We are who we are because of the state of our hearts. It says here the Holy Spirit was sent forth into our hearts. But notice how the Spirit is referred to in our verse. If you'll remember all those verses I quickly read a moment ago, the Spirit was referred to him in a variety of ways. He was called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, sometimes just Spirit. But in our verse in Galatians 4, he's called the Spirit of his Son. So think about that. He's the Spirit of God and he's the Spirit of the Son. We see that. Actually, in Romans 8, verse 9, both designations. Romans 8, 9 says, you are not in the flesh. That's a statement of our position now in Christ. We do act fleshly at times, but we should never say we are in the flesh. That means lost. We are now in the Spirit. That's our position. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, see how he goes back and forth there, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ then that person does not belong to the Lord. That dual designation confirms this intimacy that existed between the Son and the Spirit within the Godhead. So all three, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all make up the one triune God. And yes, this whole idea of the Godhead or the Trinity is a great mystery, and yet it's biblical. The one true God exists in three persons. But more specifically, what's being said in our verse, the point being made, is that the receiving of the Spirit that was sent forth into our hearts, the receiving of the Spirit is connected to the bestowal of sonship upon us. We receive the Spirit, and with that gift, we are adopted into God's family. There's not a hard and fast logical sequence being presented here. That's not the point. Both aspects are true, and they are both aspects, the receiving of the Spirit and being adopted into the family of God, both are aspects of the same reality. So yes, take all this together, we hold to a Trinitarian view of the doctrine of adoption. God the Father is the one who adopts us. That's possible because he sent his son to redeem us from bondage so that we're no longer slaves but sons. And the father sent the spirit into our hearts to confirm that sonship. 
To say it all differently, the work of the Son is to bring us into relationship with the Father, while the work of the, of the Spirit is to seal that relationship, to seal that family tie, which is exactly what is conveyed in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Our status in the family of God cannot change. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all work together to make us God's true sons and daughters. And our point is that in that family relationship, we enjoy intimacy. In fact, look at what the rest of verse 6 says. Crying, Abba, Father. This is how God's children are to think of God. This is how we are to address Him as Father. And the wording describes the fact that it's the Spirit within us that that creates this cry. Now that term for crying is not a mild term. It conveys very intense feeling, emotion. It's used elsewhere, for example, to describe the shrieks of that Demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, verse 5, it says constantly, night and day, he was screaming, same Greek term, screaming, crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. It was the term used for the cry of Christ on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So back in Galatians, it refers to this idea of intensely crying out from the heart. It certainly may be expressed in our lips, but the issue is, is this the cry of our hearts? This is how we would approach God, the way that a child would approach his or her father. And notice that Paul includes both the Aramaic and the Greek forms of this term. Abba, that's the Aramaic. Father, that's the Greek form. Just so you know, the Jews of that day frequently and commonly spoke Aramaic. Jesus himself commonly spoke Aramaic. Some people in other cultures did too, but the Jews frequently did. The Gentiles commonly spoke Greek, although they may have known some Aramaic as well. And this Aramaic form, Abba, was a term of respect or, even better, endearment. It was often used in their culture in the context of the family. Not always used that way. It had other uses, but commonly used in the context of the family because there it was used to convey this distinctive sense of of an intimate relationship in family. Now, you may have heard this explained before by someone else that that it's sort of the equivalent of our English term, daddy? Not really. That's not a real adequate way of, to capture this term. That makes it far too sentimental, and it trivializes it, really. It rather means something like, dearest father, my most dear father. So because we've received the Spirit, we're conscious of who we are now, our sonship. 
It's not necessarily about some emotion, but it is a confidence. It's a subjective confidence that we have that we're allowed to think of God this way. And the point is that it is a special work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to put that in our hearts, to put that family word in our hearts and onto our lips. It's the Holy Spirit within us who generates this cry. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to refer to God this way. Father, this is, this is a different way of thinking than constantly and only just thinking of ourselves as servants of the Lord. We are His servants. But not only that. By obedience, we fulfill our roles as God's servants. But our sonship is not based upon that. Our sonship is based entirely on what Christ accomplished, the redemption that He accomplished And that's connected to God's adopting of us. And God's Spirit, as I said, confirms this by motivating us and enabling us to think of God as our Father and to call Him that. We can have this confidence that He is our Father. But it's not because we've worked our way into His family somehow or we paid some sort of fee or we've deserved it. No, He's not our Father because of anything we do or have done at all. And that's why we can rest in this intimacy. And by the way, when we call God our Father, we are using the very address Jesus used even in the hours before his death in that tragic scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in such deep anguish. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And he, Jesus, was saying, Abba, Father, both terms. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. As the Son, he ultimately desired the Father's will to be done. And again, the point is that we can enjoy a sense of intimacy with our Father like that, just like Christ the Son did. And it's the Spirit who helps us in our hearts to know that intimacy. Perhaps the best commentary is what we find in another passage of Scripture written by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. But you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We're not living our lives in fear, fear of failure, fear of not measuring up to what the law requires. No, we live our lives conscious of our status as sons and that we can keep going to God as our Abba, our Father, our dearest Father. It's the Spirit Himself who testifies with our human spirit that we are children of God. What an intimacy we can enjoy. What a new freedom we have to approach God in such an intimate way. And we can approach Him at any time under any circumstance, even though we're certainly aware of our moments of failure and our sin, our inadequacy, we can approach Him confidently knowing that He always hears us, that He always will lovingly care for us because we belong to Him. That's why the writer of Hebrews could say this in Hebrews 4.16, 
Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We go there and we find what we need, he says. We find mercy for the times of our failure and we find enabling grace to help us live a life that pleases our Father so that we can also say, not our will, but your will be done. Well, that's a wonderful outcome of being adopted. We enjoy intimacy. And there's a second one. Along with intimacy, we enjoy, as adopted children in the royal family, we enjoy security. That's found in verse 7 now. He says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Notice how he begins that with the term therefore. That always points us back, you know. It indicates that this verse is the conclusion of all that's been said in verses 1 to 6. Because all that is true, our status has totally and irrevocably changed. You are no longer a slave. You're a son and a daughter. No longer under subjection to the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant. No longer living under the harshness of that tutor, that instructor, the law. And we are definitely not under the curse of the law. And here's what's so great about this. He changed pronouns. Before, he's been writing with the plural pronoun you. But in this verse, that pronoun you is singular. We don't always see that in English. It's singular. He's addressing each individual believer and says, each of you need to grasp this, who you are. Each of this need to think of yourself as a son or daughter. Each of you need to think of God as your father. Or to follow that earlier analogy in verses 1, 2, and 3, each Christian is no longer a minor, but we are now of age because we're in Christ and we each have rights to the inheritance, the rest of verse 7. And if a son, then an heir through God. Don't get too hung up on that little word if. A lot of times our, trend, if, our, a lot of times our translations use if, but it's better translated uh, in many contexts like this one with our English word since. And since you are a son, you're an heir through God. And that's significant because the eternal inheritance is only for sons, not slaves. I love this quote from Peter Barnes. Just a simple statement. A Christian is a sinner who has been delivered from the greatest evil to be crowned with the choicest blessing from slave to heir. And as you can see back there in that verse again, the verse contains a preposition through. Through God. This is a preposition that denotes the ultimate cause of something. God is the ultimate cause. He's the creator. He's the bestower of the inheritance. Because he accomplished everything that's necessary for us to even have an inheritance. I'm so grateful to know our inheritance is secure. It's not based on my fickle and inconsistent performance. It's secure. It's guaranteed. What a security that brings us. I'm glad that it was accomplished through God. I'm not an heir. We're not heirs by virtue of birth. We're not heirs by virtue of our 
particular ethnicity or our social status or our financial status or through any merits of our own. It is through what God has graciously done through the sending of His Son and the Holy Spirit. There is a question beg though. So what is our inheritance? How much are we talking about? Well, in short, I don't have time to do a thorough study of our eternal inheritance, but in short, it is eternal life in heaven. Eternal life in heaven in God's presence. It is the eternal enjoyment of all the glories of heaven, the very glories that Philippians 2 says that the Son left in order to come to earth and take on the form of a a human All the beauties of heaven. I couldn't help but think about our study of Revelation on Wednesday nights that we finished. And all those scenes of the the heavenly Jerusalem, the new future city, heavenly Jerusalem. And and it's made up of all those elements. And yet the way they're described, there are all those different elements that make up the the heavenly eternal city, celestial city, are, are clear so that the glory and the radiance of God's glory can never be obstructed by anything. And there's no night the beauties of heaven, and all the eternal provisions of heaven, our inheritance is basking eternally in all, get this, all that rightfully belongs to the Son. Now, I read Romans 8, 15, and 16 a moment ago, but let's go on to verse 17. If we're children, since we're children, heirs also, heirs of God, and look what it says, fellow heirs with Christ. We have His his inheritance. What belongs to Christ belongs to us. What an incredible inheritance. What an incomprehensible truth. It's for the one who has come to give himself or herself to Christ in faith, not by works, but in faith to follow Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, to that person, God gives everything His Son possesses. Such a reassuring note of security. Peter spells it out pretty bluntly. 1 Peter 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved for you. And you'll never lose the reservation. You won't get there and they go, well, I I, I can't find your reservation, your name. Well, I called it in. I went online. No. It's reserved And it's protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our adoption as son equals eternal security. And that security is connected to our possession of the Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 14. He's given to us as a pledge. So he was sent forth into our hearts so we can understand our adoption and cry out, Father, but He's there as a pledge, a promise, a guarantee, a down payment, if you will, of our inheritance. 
and that makes it secure. Well, wonderful verses, so what can we conclude from this text? More than what I'm about to tell you, but we can at least conclude these basic facts then about sons and daughters. Let's just back up for a moment and look at what it means to be a son or a daughter. What characterizes sons and daughters then adopted into God's family? Here's one fact. Sons and daughters. Sons preserve unity. They preserve, they maintain unity in the family. Now, there's many passages of Scripture that highlight the importance of maintaining unity in the body. That is so crucial. We take it very seriously here. And it's based upon the fact that everyone in the body is equal. All believers are equal in their standing before God, equal in their place in the family, equal adoption. There's not a hierarchy of adoption. But there was something in the passage that prompted me to think about that. Something very simple. It's the reality that Paul listed both the Aramaic and Greek forms of father. Even that is a reminder of the different cultures that are impacted by the gospel, even in Jesus' day. And that diversity is seen even more throughout all the unfolding centuries of church history since then. In fact, the very Spirit who cries out, Father, from our hearts, what did He do on the day of Pentecost? He enabled the gospel to be heard in many of the world's languages that day, miraculously. Here's my point. There is no one group group that can claim special status in God's family. There's no culture, no nation that has special status in God's eyes and His family. There's no language that can claim any special status in God's family. I think people think that way. They think, well, obviously, you know, English is going to be spoken in heaven. I mean, right? In fact, it's going to be King James English, I'm pretty sure. No. No special status about any of that. But in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. And true sons, true daughters, if they're thinking rightly, understand that. They are mindful that they all have had to be adopted into God's family to get in. Sons, sons and daughters guard unity. They preserve it. They maintain it. They prioritize it. Second, sons engage in prayer. Sons and daughters do. You see, that's a new benefit of being in the family. In the family relationship, we have the benefit of prayer. We can pray to our Father. It's in prayer that we find the most common opportunity to call Him Father. In fact, think about the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. Jesus teaching His disciples how to pray. He taught them to begin their prayer by addressing God as Father. We need to remember this in our times of prayer especially. We need in prayer times to take advantage of our status of sonship. We need to in prayer assume the posture, even the language of sons, not slaves. We need to call him father. 
You see, that's a very helpful thing to do as opposed to addressing him some other way, like with some lofty title. O thou almighty and holy God of the universe. He is that. That's a true title for him. I'm just saying, even though he is the exalted God, what will be a continual comfort to you as a son or daughter is to address him as father. Something else about this address. In our text, since we're talking about possessing the Holy Spirit, nowhere did Paul say the evidence of that is you're going to be empowered to do miraculous works. You're going to receive visions from God now. You're going to be able to speak in ecstatic languages and so on. No. The most basic indication is that we possess the Spirit. and The most basic evidence of the Spirit's work in us is that we enjoy intimacy and assurance and security as adopted children and can call God our Father. Third, sons trust during trials. That's what his children do. They trust their father. Now, the reality is, when believers are experiencing very difficult and trying circumstances, or in their times of failure, when they're in sin and fail to live in obedience to God, there certainly is the temptation in those moments to start doubting their position as his child. But the fact is, neither our times of trial nor even our times of failure affect our status as sons and daughters. So when you're facing that temptation to doubt, you need to go back and ponder the truth of this text, including what we learned last time, that God is the one that rules over all of history, even to the point that in his own eternal wisdom, he planned out the timing of the sending of the Son into the world. Listen, if God in his eternal wisdom accomplished all of that, then we can trust him with all the particulars of our lives. But again, I get it, it's easy to fall to the temptation of agonizing over the suffering that's going on in our lives. When circumstances are difficult or we're facing health problems or the timing of the death of a loved one, agonizing over that, we fall to that temptation. We don't understand the whys and the hows of all those things. But even so, we can nevertheless cling to the promise that our Father loves us. And therefore, we can and we should trust what he's doing. Trust that he will strengthen us then for whatever comes our way. That's what sons and daughters do. They trust. No doubt this surfaces the tension between what we call our position and our practice. This is who we are. It doesn't always get fleshed out in our practice because the flesh is still with us, our, our unredeemed humanness. So there's going to be a battle there between our understanding of our position and our resources in Christ and our identity with Him and our flesh, but persevere in that battle because sons and daughters 
are expected to trust their father during their trials. Number four, sons pursue obedience. Now, Galatians, the whole book is driving home the fact that God has freed us from living under the law in the Mosaic Covenant. But that doesn't mean we don't pursue obedience to the timeless ethical commands that we find in Scripture throughout Scripture. There are many timeless commands that God's people are to seek to obey. And we do that out of love for our Father because we want to live holy lives that please and glorify Him. We do pursue obedience, and that doesn't contradict the teaching that we're under grace now. It doesn't contradict the teaching that, well, now we just live by the Spirit. Listen, later on in Galatians 5, it's the Spirit who is said to be the one who enables God's people in the new covenant to obey Him. Galatians 5, 23 through 13 through 23, just a few verses there. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity to serve the flesh. Verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 22, here's what it looks like to, to seek to obey the Lord in the power of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against those things, there's no law. We do pursue obedience. Number five, sons understand fatherhood. Fatherhood. I want to emphasize this for a moment. Please track with me on this. Many in our society and very likely even some in this room are listening to me come from families that did not function biblically put it lightly. Please understand, every family is touched and defiled by sin in some way. But some people have grown up in a family where they weren't loved. They've grown up in a family where they were even abused in some way. A family where a father did not seek to love his wife and his children in a biblical way. A family where perhaps a mother failed in that way as well. If that is you, then remember this. Every family unit can be something in your own mind that points to a greater family and to a perfect father. A perfect father who loves us. A father who sent his own son for our salvation. But I realize it it can be difficult. If you come from a background of abuse or neglect or abandonment or, or extreme selfishness and all that, it can be difficult to understand what it means when we say God is your father because you think of your earthly father. So you've got to remind yourself daily as you meditate on God's word that God is a very different father than your father was and perhaps different than your mother as well. He is the perfect parent. Even when he disciplines, he always disciplines in love. He is completely a faithful father. Generous, kind, always just. And he loves you. 
And he's a father that actually longs and desires to spend time with you. So if, you're, if your walk with Christ has been hindered or affected in some way due to some kind of failure in your past, a failure of parental love, then I encourage you to meditate on what we've been studying in Galatians, but also take those things to the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you forgive any failure on the part of a parent. Ask him to help you forgive anyone who has hurt you in some way. And ask him to reveal to you the true nature of your Father in heaven so that you can in freedom and joy gladly give yourself to him. And if necessary, talk to a mature believer who can help you think about all that and help you in your journey of learning what it means to rest in the Heavenly Father's care. Lastly, number six, sons endorse adoption. And I mean literal adoption in our world today. We support it. We, we endorse it. Now, many families, especially in Western society, but especially Christian families, have adopted children. And that is a wonderful undertaking because adoptions testify in a unique way to the gospel. They end up being an earthly picture of our own adoption by God. Now, I'm not saying it is God's will for every family to adopt children. My wife and I did not choose to do so, at least not literally. We seek to provide support for some children in other countries, but we haven't literally adopted. But for those who do choose to literally adopt, what a wonderful ministry it is to provide a loving home for an orphaned child, to bring them into your family, and to raise that child in the nurture, the teaching, the training, the admonition of the love of the Lord. So who knows? Maybe the Lord will put it on the heart of some more families in our church to take on adopting a child and by doing that be a living illustration to everyone of the doctrine of God's adoption of children, of sinners. Maybe so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that's remind us Remind us what you've done for us and what you accomplished and who we are as sons and daughters of the living God, our Heavenly Father. Lord, make us mindful of this as we live our lives each day, that living for you is not a drudgery. It's not even duty and obligation alone. It, it, it certainly is that. There are family obligations, but it's a joy to please our Father. Sons and daughters want to please a loving Father. So Lord, enable us by your Spirit to do that. Make us mindful of that even as we pray to claim that status of sonship in our prayers and that you are our Father.
I pray for anyone here who has come out of a difficult home environment in years past and is still carrying hurt from that and memories of that. I pray that you would strengthen them by your spirit and by your word to be able to forgive and to go forward. Lord, not to stay in the past, but to go forward and onward to get to know you for who you really are. Not who, you, who they may think you are, but who you really are, a loving Father. We thank you, Lord, that you want that person who struggles to receive your love. Enable them to do that. And Father, I pray for anyone here who's not come to that place of surrender, in a sense, to say, I, I can't figure things out on my own. I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. I pray that you would give them the gift of faith that they may trust in Christ alone as their Lord and Savior so that they'll be adopted into your family. In our Savior's name, amen.